would like to just let you know, uh, we we have a sister church over in the Philippines that watches our services, and uh, Grace Baptist uh, and Pastor Luciano has let me know that come May, they're going to have a very big youth gathering, uh, specifically bringing some young people who do not know the Lord. There have been a lot of folks saved in the last few weeks through their Bible studies, and uh, he wants me to be a part of this and, and uh, to, to meet the needs of the kids that are going to be there. They're going to need to raise about $250. So if you would like to help with that, uh, let me know and we'll get that all figured out. But be praying for this youth event that hopefully young people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, will receive him, and then move through life in a very powerful and meaningful way. Lord, speak now through Christ. Amen. We continue to look at the book of Jonah, running on empty. Uh, he's running from the Lord. He has, as um, my brother's already shown, he's been thrown overboard and now he is in a problem. But according to uh, the BBC, on June 23rd, 2018, 12 boys... Uh, when exploring in Thailand's Chiang Rai province with their soccer coach. You may remember this story. This is a picture the boys posted on Facebook just before they went. Uh, they were going to uh, go into a cave that they had been in many times before. The name of the, their team was the Wild Boars, so they weren't afraid of anything. They explored uh, the Tham Luang Kang many times. Uh, they would go searching out its nooks and crannies and they would kind of use it as initiation rite. Whenever they'd have a new team join, member join the team, they would sign his name on the wall. And everything was great and, and they were so ready to go. Sometimes they would go as far as five miles into the cave. Now, this cave you access through some water. But there are times... It gets really bad. They were so excited. Uh, when they got to the cave, they left their bikes, their backpacks. All they needed was their flashlights because they only planned on being there for an hour. But they wound up being there for two weeks. Uh, the, the, the cave can fill up with water. During the monsoon season in July, uh, the cave can be flooded as deep as 16 feet. And they were going, the general rule of thumb, you go and explore the cave between November and April. So they're already just one month away from monsoon. And there had been heavier rains, and rain was running off and had to go someplace. Well, hours after they left, one of the parents of one of the boys became very concerned because it was his birthday and he hadn't shown up for the party. So they checked social media and found out they'd been talking about going the Tham Luang. And so they immediately raised an alarm because people had been lost in that cave system before. And they, they try to get people there to help. Uh, when they get there, they find the bikes, they find the backpacks, but there are no signs of the boy. The, the story of their escape actually made world news. It was a very uh, tense moment in time. The, the Thai Navy SEALs were involved, local police were involved, and Divers really came from all over the world to try and help find these young men and bring them back to family and friends. 
uh, divers in the, in the, well, just to let you know how serious a situation it was, when the boys became trapped, uh, one of the divers in the rescue mission actually drowned himself. He was bringing air tanks to the boys, and somehow he ran out of air. And his partner tried to revive him and was not able to. Well, the boys had gotten two miles into the cave and found themselves on a small rocky shelf as the waters began rising. They were very industrious. They started digging on, at the walls and were able to move a little bit deeper into the cave. They had a safer place to go. Now, they had no food, but they had plenty of water. The rocks in the cave, the walls are very porous. And so air was able to get into their spot. And it was also able, the rain that had been falling was also seeping through those pores into their little place of shelter. So they had water to drink. Their coach was a former monk. And so he's teaching them meditation techniques and encouraging them to lie still and, and save their breath, even though they have plenty of air, and to be calm. One week into the rescue, two British divers found the boys finally. And uh, this is a a cut from the live video. When they come up into this little area, they find the boys, they count everybody, there's 13 here, brilliant. They knew they were all alive. Uh, But it took another week before they were able to rescue. They're now in July, July 7th the beginning of monsoon season. And the decision was made, we've got to get the boys out now. And so the divers came up with a plan, and uh, they were, the boys, once they got them, they sedated them and harnessed them to the divers with air. Uh, They sedated them with ketamine. And uh, they were later criticized about this, but they said we had to keep the boys calm. Had they panicked, they might not only drown themselves, they might hurt the divers. So they were almost at a state of coma when they were pulled out. Uh, When they were all out and they were at the hospital, they paid homage to the one man who gave his life for them to try to save them. And sadly, a year later, one of the other other divers died from a blood infection that he had incurred during the rescue operation. Uh, But they were, all of them, well. They were able to write letters and send with the divers to their families, tell them how much they loved them. And the coach sent letters to the parents apologizing for the predicament the boys were in. And when the parents sent letters back, They said, you have nothing to apologize for. We are so grateful that you were there with them and helped keep them alive. If you want to know more about this, if you happen to have streaming services, Amazon Prime has a a movie that was made about the situation. It's called 13 Lives, and it's streaming right now. And on Netflix, if you have Netflix, there is a documentary, uh, The Trapped 13, How We Survived the Thai Cave. And you'll actually be able to hear the boys themselves tell their stories. It was an amazing rescue mission, and it, all over the world, people were cheering when they found out what had happened. 
at that moment in time. Well, today we're going to look at a very exciting story. Uh, but it's one that the world is skeptical about. They're not quite ready to believe this story. But it doesn't involve divers, and it doesn't involve teens, and it doesn't involve men coming up with a great plan on what to do. What it does is involve the sovereign Lord of the universe, creator, and it involves the prophet who had tried to run away from God. So I ask you to please stand as we listen to what was a rescue mission on behalf of Jonah the prophet. I'll be reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And hear the word of the Lord. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, the song of thanksgiving will give sacrifice to you. With what, what I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God bless the reading of the word. You may be seated. Now, undoubtedly, Jonah being involved in the storm at sea, being cast out into the sea, the Mediterranean sinking, as he said, down toward the bottom of the sea. Then a fish swallows him. Undoubtedly, this was all an act of God's discipline. But as we look at the text closely this morning, one thing becomes abundantly clear. God rescued Jonah in order to bring him to obedience. God rescued him. It wasn't just a question of discipline. This was not God trying to kill the prophet. This was God trying to bring the prophet home. And as we realize this, and as we look at our text this morning, one thing becomes abundantly clear for us as well. God's hand of discipline will ultimately lead us home. When God does what He has to do to get our attention, He wants to rescue us. So we're going to take a look at what this text tells us about God's hand of discipline and how it will ultimately lead us home. With this truth in mind, let's see how God works to lead us through His hand of discipline by what He did with Jonah. 
So right off the bat, our sovereign God uses whatever means He chooses to rescue His strained children. He doesn't just let us go. He doesn't write us off. He doesn't cross us off His favorites list. He says, no, I'm going to reach you. I'm going to touch you. And God chose a very unusual way. God provided a fish for Jonah to show him that his intent was to rescue, not destruction. Now, it's important that we understand this. I mentioned when he first started looking at this book that people just write it off because a whale and a fish swallow a guy. Uh, Folks, and I pointed out to you then, the fish is only mentioned twice in this entire book. When he swallows Jonah, and when, as the NIV very graphically describes, he vomits him out. That's all that is mentioned about the fish, other than the fact that God appointed him. God provided this fish for Jonah. And again, it was amazing. When Jonah plunged into the water, he was absolutely certain he was going to die. There was no way he could have known what God was doing. In his own brain, in his own heart, he is now going to die. But he said he cried out to God for help. And then he gave in great detail, and we'll look at that in a few minutes, about everything that said, I am going to my impending doom. But God did something unexpected. I would ask for a show of hands for everybody in this room that God has at one point in time done something in your life. You were praying one way and God did something completely different. Uh, and, and okay, yeah, you're showing me every, almost every one of us here, this has happened. Suddenly, swallowed by this fish, Winding up in its belly, gastric juices and everything, Jonah suddenly realized, God actually heard me. God heard me. Now, I grow a little bit impatient with some folks every once in a while. I know that's hard to believe. I am such a gentle soul. But scholars, and some people who just pick up the Bible and read this story without much depth, Say, you know what? Jonah was arrogant in that fish. Jonah was saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And there's no, they argue, there is no sign of repentance in this prayer. I think you need to read deeper. Because I believe Jonah referenced two prayers in this text. The first he prays once he goes in the water. And he is sinking towards his death. The second Jonah prays once God has delivered him. And he realizes God heard me. Folks, I want to tell you, one of the reasons I get a little upset when people say he was... This is the only happy chapter in the whole book. The only happy chapter when God saves Jonah and there are people who have never been in the belly of a fish, who are saying, well, he wasn't he the arrogant one? Folks, when you look at this, it's very clear. Something happened to change Jonah. He is not the same man he was. 
Is he perfect? Nope. We're going to find that out in the rest of the book. But he's not the same man. And I believe the prayer that he prayed while he was sinking, certain that he was going to die, was a prayer, God, I am sorry that I ran from your call. And God, if there's any hope for me, it's in your hands and your hands alone. I believe he was begging for forgiveness as well as his life. And folks, when it comes to us, our Father does not indulge his children's disobedience. And we must be clear on this point. Some people look at God like he's a grandfather. I'm a grandfather now and I'm really trying not to be one of the bad ones. You know, the, the, the grandfathers who look the other way when their grandchildren are doing something wrong, I, I don't want to see, or who even reward bad behavior because we feel the, grandpa- the parents are being too strict, so we slip them a coin. Or Nowadays, I guess it had to be a dollar bill. A quarter isn't going to do it today. Maybe a ten, but I don't want to be that kind of grandfather. God isn't that kind of grandfather. But neither is he a sadistic, abusive father who is waiting for us to get out of line so he can beat us senseless. Andrew Murray, a great man of God from days gone by, said, God has no pleasure in afflicting us, but he will not keep back even the most painful chastisement if he can but thereby guide his beloved child to come home and abide in his beloved son. So you and I, as children of the living God, when we stray from our Father's plan, God is going to bring discipline into our lives, and He can do it in a lot of different ways. He may choose to do it just through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, has once in a very wonderful poem, was called the Hound of Heaven, and He keeps just coming after us and running and convicting us, and we can't get away from the sense of guilt where we have broken our Father's heart. We have run away from Him and the Spirit continues to convict. He may do it with His Word. God has a way when I step out of line, the only Scriptures I seem to be remember to be able to remember are all those Scriptures who just tell me, this is what you did wrong, Danny. I open my Bible for a fresh Bible study, and it's right there. And the Word of God calls me and moves in my heart to draw me home. Sometimes He may do it through painful circumstances, consequences of our lives that come when we walk out of His will, but however God chooses to discipline us. Isn't it easy for us to be filled with self-pity? Why would God do that to me? I'm better than that guy. Why won't he leave me alone? Why won't he just let me be? The writer of Hebrews declared something very obvious. In Hebrews 12, the first part of verse 11, very obvious. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Can you relate to that? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yes. um, I won't tell you how many times, but I did face discipline as a child. Again, I know it's hard to imagine. And I never at any point in time after my father 
disciplined me. I never looked at him and said, thank you, Father. You did such a good job. It's not pleasant. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't leave it there. No discipline is pleasant. Later on, however, he says, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God's desire when discipline comes is for us to confess, for us to come back to Him, for us to have a restored relationship with us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when the disciplining hand of God comes, folks, we can take hope from the truth that God reaches out to us when we stray. Just think for one moment at the terrifying ramification. We say to God when His discipline comes, will you just leave me alone, God? There's only one place where that is said to happen. In Romans 1. With the pagans who turn from worshiping the God of creation to the creation itself, Three times in that chapter, the most horrifying phrase you will ever hear in the Word of God, God gave them up. Thankfully, we're His children. And God won't give us up. And so we come back to Hebrews 12. One last verse that gives us insight. Verse 6. The Lord disciplines those He loves and punishes everyone He accepts as a son. So whatever means He's going to use, God is going to discipline us. God is going to call us home. God is going to bring us to Himself. So when we realize that God has been working not to destroy, but to restore us to a vital relationship with Him, we begin to realize the harvest of righteousness and peace that prompts our hearts to respond. Folks, this is the next truth we have here. Our merciful God's forgiveness leads His children to true gratitude. When we realize everything He's done is to bring us home, it's an amazing moment. And you look at Jonah. As he now launches into the psalm that that he's just being so thankful to God for what he's done. He very clearly lets us understand something. Jonah's psalm revealed his awareness that God saved him from certain death. Listen to the way he described what he was experiencing. The, the, The sailors throw him over into the sea. And he was the one who told them to do it. To spare their lives. But in this text, Jonah says, God, you hurled me into the very heart of the sea. It's the same word that is used when it, when in chapter two, uh, one, the, the word of the Lord says, God hurled a great storm onto the ship. You were the one who really put me into the sea. He said, I was surrounded by the darkness of the sea. Seaweed was wrapping around my head and I've 
but it, it's quite literally, it's wrapping around my throat. He said, I was sinking down to the very roots of the mountain. He's saying, I'm going to go to the very seabed. And then he said, I'm about to be barred forever in the earth, which is probably an image of Sheol, the grave. He knew he was about to be separated from God forever. And then, just as he was about to die, I remembered you, O Lord, and I cried out for your help. I cried out for your help in your holy temple. And it's very possible, John has in mind, you remember Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is in the temple in Jerusalem and is, is caught up into the holy temple in heaven. Jonah knows it's from the throne room of heaven that you have rescued me. And his response to the Lord's salvation, even if it meant I've changed the darkness from the sea to the darkness of the belly of a fish. The stench had to be awful, the gastric juices, all those horrible things we could do on, but how does he respond? With pure and complete thankfulness. I thank you. I can't imagine saying, I thank you that I've been swallowed by this fish. But he knows it's God moving in his life. And friends, the reality is, we will never be able to adequately express our gratitude and praise to the God of mercy. When he is moving in our lives, and we realize what he's done, that he has disciplined and he has called us home. Folks, it's just absolutely amazing. Former slave trader John Newton was saved and years after his salvation experience, reflecting back on how God had brought a change in his heart. He penned one of the most amazing, wonderful gospel songs, immortal. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we even sing this song in heaven. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. Now, when we realize God moves in our lives to draw us home, how can we possibly offer up enough words to say thank you, God? Thank you that you reached out to me when I was running. Thank you that you called me home. Thank you that you refused to let me go. Over a decade ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman and Jeff Moore expressed this beautifully in their song, Listen to Our Hearts. How do you explain, how do you describe a love that goes from east to west and runs as deep as it is wide? You know all our hopes, Lord. You know all our fears. And words cannot express the love we feel. But we long for you to hear. So listen to our hearts. Hear our spirits sing. A song of praise that flows from those you have redeemed. We will use the words we know to tell you what an awesome God you are. But words are not enough to tell you of our love. So listen to our hearts. Folks, our words 
may be inadequate to say thank you to God. Our vocabularies may run out, but folks, we can learn to walk with grateful hearts if we remember how God has granted us mercy and grace. Every person in this room who knows Jesus can sing that old gospel song very personally. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Continually, we need to realize when we have strayed away, God is calling us back. God is moving in our hearts to bring us back to where we need to be. And when we rejoice that God has been moving us, to bring us to mercy and grace, we become aware of one more beautiful reality. God has made possible our yielding our lives into His purpose. Because our Father God offers the possibility of commitment for His children. I have known people, you mess up one time and they're through with you. I take it you've known the same people I do. But our Father God does not do that. And in that belly of the fish, the moment of praise and the moment of absolute thankfulness, Jonah declared his purpose to obey God's call. He spoke of people who worship worthless idols. And he says, when they do that, they, they move away from the grace that could be theirs if they would just trust in the Lord God. But he said, I'm going to offer sacrifice to you in your temple. And one day, I will fulfill the vow I've made to you, O Lord. Now he doesn't tell us what the vow is. But we got a good guess, don't we? I believe in the belly of the fish, Jonah said, I surrender. I'm going to go to Nineveh. And I'm going to preach what you wanted me to preach. Now later on in the book, he'll tell us all the reasons why he didn't want to. But he says, I'm going to do it. Because I know I owe this to you. This is my vow to you. And I will keep. This vow, I will go to Nineveh. Now the beautiful truth that we need to hear today is God's mercy opens a door to find new purpose for our lives when we turn to Him. The best thing could happen is that we never, ever, ever disobey the Lord, right? We always do everything He says, right? I would ask a show of hands for those of you who do that. But then we'd have to have a special altar call uh, that, that had to deal with people who tell untruths because there's nobody in this room who has ever been 100 obedient to God. Only one person has ever existed that never gave in to sin and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. So we stumble and we fall and we could 
we have every reason to think God is now through with me. But the great news of God's mercy is that He grants us a chance for a new start. Louisa Fletcher once wrote, I wish there were some wonderful place in the land of beginning again where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all our poor selfish grief could be dropped like a shabby old coat at the door and never be put on again. Folks, God's mercy withholding from us what we deserve and giving us grace, God's mercy is the land of beginning again. He does not hold on to the sins, confess, waiting to use them against us. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands, because and everybody would have to, and I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I'll raise mine. Uh, I fully realize that expression, forgive and forget, applies to God alone. God alone does that. And we are told in his word that God, in Isaiah and in the book of Hebrews, I will remember their sins no more. You hurt me and I'll forgive you and it will be real forgiveness. And then somewhere down the line you hurt me again and every thinking rotten thing you have ever done to me comes back to my mind. That's humanity. That's why Jesus told Peter when he said, do I have to forgive a brother seven times? No, 70 times seven. And I've known some people who thought, well, I can count up and I'm 491, I can... I, I, I can quit forgiving them. No, the point is we have to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And one day when that forgiveness has really taken root, we may still remember the crime, but we no longer have the hate and anger because forgiveness has finally come true. God forgets. Not because he has memory problems, Because of what Jesus did for us, he chooses to forget. And this is the exciting thing. One of my favorite professors of all time, I had him in college and seminary, Dr. Donald Potts, went on to be with the Lord a long time ago. Dr. Potts used to say, don't pray for God to use you. He said, pray for God to make you usable. Folks, we can find an opportunity to be usable for the kingdom of God. When we think God is through with us and He keeps convicting and we finally say, yes, Lord, I sin. The word confess, it means literally to say the same thing. When I'm finally willing to say, God, I did what you're convicting me about, He cleanses us. And he grants us opportunities for usability. Think of David. Caught in his shame over Bathsheba. For a full year he thought he got away with it. He thought he hid his sin. And then one day his prophet Nathan comes up. Tells him this heartbreaking story. When David is angry. That man needs to die. Nathan looked and said. In one of the most brave statements in all scripture. I even picture him pointing his bony little finger at David and saying, you are the man. David repented. 
over the sins of adultery and murder. And the last word about David in the word of God is found in Acts 13.22. And it says, David was a man after God's own heart. Think of Peter, who promised so much to the Lord. Everybody else may fail you, but I'm with you all the way. I would never deny you. Oh yeah, you will. And the book of Luke actually lets us know when the cock crowed the third time, it tells us somehow in God's providence, Peter was able to look into the face of his Lord. And Jesus saw him right at that moment. Now, many days later, this guy that Jesus once called the rock who folded under pressure, on the day of Pentecost, is standing up in Jerusalem. And he's looking at the crowd. And in that crowd, there are people who were part of the death of Jesus Christ. He declares with all of the boldness of a rock, the man you killed, the man you crucified, God has made both Savior and Lord. He is the Messiah of God. Think of John. Got a nickname. When Jesus is holding out, throwing out nicknames, I, I would really love to have been called the Rock. But John is given a nickname, Son of Thunder, along with his brother, James. Sons of Thunder, because they were so angry and so full of hate, they said about a village that had rejected Jesus, call fire down from heaven! Burn them! Again, I will not ask for a show of hands if anybody's ever prayed that prayer. But decades later, when he's writing his letters, this old man who could be so angry, so full of hatred, that you can't love God if you hate your brother. And he, he called the people he's writing to, my dear children. Think of Paul, once the persecutor of the church who gave his life in service to the Lord Jesus Christ, suffering persecution several times, ultimately to the point of physical death. And certainly, if God can do so much with men like these, He can certainly use us when we turn our hearts to Him. God, forgive us. Forgive me. The story is told of a sculptor who had ruined a huge piece of beautiful Carrera marble. It was, and it, when I say huge, I'll give you the dimensions in a minute. It was left in the courtyard of the Cathedral of Florence, Italy, for almost a hundred years. Artists would come by, look at it, nope, can't be fixed, and walk away. Then in 1505, a young sculptor by the name of Michelangelo was asked if he thought it could be, anything could be done with what they were now referring to as the giant. Kind of got that, the giant mess. He measured the block and carefully noted the imperfections caused by the former sculptor. And into his mind came a very vivid picture. He knew what he wanted to do with this block. And so he made out a sketch of a biblical character. It took him three years he worked steadily, his chisel shaping the marble. 
finally one day, one of his students got to see the work. The statue of David. As he's getting ready to fight Goliath. 18 feet high. Weighed nine tons. And when the student looked at it, he said, Master, it lacks only one thing. Speech. One of the most powerful, powerful images ever ever sculpted by man. Folks, the reality is we were all marred, marred, Ivory marred, vessels marred people. And God reached out to us with salvation. And we thought everything's great from here on out. And then we still stumble and fall. We think God is through with us, and God says, No, I'm not. I don't let go of my children that easily. And he reaches out to us to restore us, to make us whole, to give us life. Today, we're going to have a time of prayer. And if you'd like to come to the altar and pray, you can. But folks, whatever has happened in your life, wherever you are with God, if you've misstepped and that convicting power has come, Know this. God is reaching out to you because He loves you. And He wants to make you all that you can be. My prayer is that every one of us here in this room will do whatever business we need to do with God right now. But when all is said and done, we will leave this place more fully committed to God's purpose. More fully committed to what God wants out of our lives. Because the wonderful God we serve, folks, He's not just the God of the second chance. He gives multiple as we need them.